Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. And since it is a longer portion of Scripture, rather than reading it at this time, we will read it as we work our way through the text. Have you ever noticed the relationship between forgetting Christ and falling into some besetting sin? When our recollection of His power, of His faithfulness, of His mercies, of His truth are pushed far, far back into the recesses of our memory, we are far less or more less likely to go our own way and far less likely to turn to Christ and to set ourselves up for grave temptation. But dear ones, to enjoy Christ, to commune with Christ, to meditate upon Christ throughout the day, is to be ready and to be prepared for the most difficult trials of life. For you see, dear ones, a forgetful hearer is in no condition to do battle with the enemy of his soul. A forgetful hearer is like a soldier that has fallen asleep on the job. He's not ready for the surprise attack. The disciples of Christ had just witnessed Christ multiply the bread and the fish and feed 5,000 men And within 12 hours, they had forgotten Christ. They had forgotten His power. They had forgotten His faithfulness and His mercy. And the truth declared by that mighty act performed in their very presence. Dear ones, today, let us learn that this same dreadful sin of forgetfulness will make us ill-prepared to face the trials and temptations that come our way as well. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are the following. Number one, the prayers of Christ our priest. Mark 6, 45-48. Number two, the power of Christ our King. Mark 6, 48-51 and then 53-56. And then number three, the forgetfulness of the of the disciples, Mark six verse fifty two. <clears throat> the prayers of Christ, our priest, is our first main point. If you'd like to follow along, I'm, I'll begin with Mark six forty five and read through the first part of verse forty eight. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toil, toiling in rowing.
After the Lord had miraculously fed the 5,000 men, and that's not including women and children that might have been present on that occasion, he immediately compels the disciples to leave and quickly disperses the multitudes that had just witnessed this amazing miracle. Now, why does he do so? What's the hurry? What's the urgency? He would surely have a very captive audience after having performed uh, this particular miracle. Why not take advantage of it? Well, one reason was no doubt due to the lateness of the hour, for by this time it was very close to nightfall. In fact, uh, the evening was already upon them. According to Mark 6.35, it was the day was well spent when they began to ask the question, what are we going to do with all of these people? They need food. So actually before they had broken the people up into fifties and one hundreds and the Lord had blessed the food, they had distributed the food, they had eaten the food, it was already the day was well spent. So by the time this is completed, it is now into, no doubt, the evening. Darkness is upon them. That would explain why the Lord might quickly disperse the crowd, but it does not seem to explain why he immediately constrained the disciples to leave. Well, perhaps the parallel passage in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 provides another reason. There we find these words. After the Lord had performed this miracle, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Verse 15, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. The multitudes that witnessed this miracle saw in Christ one who could lead them to victory over the Romans. They were about to take him into Jerusalem in order to set him up in Jerusalem as their political monarch and king. He would set the Jews free from the Romish tyranny, they thought. However, they missed something very, very important, they missed the nature of Christ's kingship, the nature of his kingdom. It was not of a political or civil nature. It was of a spiritual nature. And therefore, he sends his disciples away because he doesn't want his disciples to get all caught up in the frenzy of the moment, as they were very apt to do. Jesus came to establish His kingdom and rule in our hearts and in our lives by means of His Word and His Spirit, by means of the preaching and teaching of the gospel of salvation. 
One might ask, well, how then will the nations and the kings of the earth come to embrace Jesus Christ? It will be accomplished by the effectual preaching of the gospel, by the effectual application of it by His Holy Spirit to the hearts and lives of people, drawing them to Himself, persuading them, enabling them to embrace Christ, giving to them a hungering and a thirsting to know what God's will is within the family, within the church, within the nations. Reformation, dear ones, that we are talking about here, doesn't come by way of force at the point of a bayonet. It comes by way of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that is not to deny that it is yet the responsibility of the magistrate to uphold not only the last six commandments, but also the first four commandments by suppressing the outward manifestation of heresy and blasphemy and idolatry and covenant-breaking and Sabbath-breaking. However, it must always be remembered that it is by persuasion, not by raw, brute force, that people come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is no real conversion where there is no voluntary Submission to the Lord Jesus. An involuntary submission is a demonic submission. Even the demons gave that type of submission as we read through the Gospels. Thus, the Gospel and prayer and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ are always our primary tools in bringing reformation to this world. Our text indicates that the Lord sent the disciples by sea to a second town called Bethsaida. <clears throat> uh, there apparently was a Bethsaida where the disciples and Jesus went to rest and where the multitudes came and the 5,000 were fed. That was in the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee on that shore. And there was also Bethsaida on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee as well, where some of the disciples actually took up residence themselves. And so from the one Bethsaida to the other Bethsaida, the disciples sojourned across the sea, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 10. The Lord sent them ahead of him in order that he might send them into another trial of their faith. Whereas in Mark 4, verses 35 through 41, the disciples were tested on the Sea of Galilee, you'll remember, while Christ was in the boat with them. But now they're to be tested in a similar type of test when Christ is not with them, how will they fare this time? 
You ever notice that the Lord does at times bring the same trials, the same temptations again and again and again into our lives? Perhaps it's because we, like the disciples, haven't learned how to overcome those particular temptations and the Lord continues to bring them into our life so that we can grow, so that we can mature and, as it were, get a passing grade on the test. The Lord who stilled the sea and silenced the waves could have altogether prevented this storm before it even came up. And so, this would indicate the sovereign God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, had a particular purpose in sending His disciples across the sea at this time. For you see, dear ones, the Lord Jesus is not only interested in teaching His disciples the right doctrine, but also in teaching them to apply the right doctrine to their lives so they truly learn the doctrine. Intellectual knowledge of doctrine without practical application of it in our lives, I would submit to you, is not true knowledge. It may be accurate knowledge, but it is not true knowledge. True knowledge of doctrine affects not only the mind, it affects the emotions, it affects the will, it affects the speech, it affects the desires, the thoughts, and the conduct of a person. For example, one who will not forgive his brother or stand ready to do so when there is repentance that is offered does not really understand the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what he confesses with his mouth, he doesn't understand it. If he can't apply it, he doesn't understand it. Or one who will not love his brother and seek reconciliation with his brother when he has been offended does not truly understand the love of Christ, the self-sacrificial love of Christ. I ask you, parents, how do you know that your children are truly understanding that which you are teaching them? When they can, by rote memory, cite for you the correct answer? Is that how you know? I would submit to you that's not the way to know that your children truly understand because they can parrot back the answer. There's nothing wrong with rote memory. But until your children are applying the truth that you're teaching them in their lives, you're going to say, my child doesn't yet understand that truth. He may be growing in his knowledge of it. There may be a kind of gradual application of it. It doesn't mean that, it, that when somebody is growing in knowledge, they just immediately put it into practice and that's it. No, there is growth. But you can tell when someone is beginning to understand something because they're beginning to apply it in their family, in the church, at work, in their in their secret time with the Lord. There's application of it. And this is what the, the Lord Jesus was seeking to do with the apostles 
as he takes them through a very similar test to the one that they passed through earlier, but a more difficult one in some respects, because this time the Lord is not with them. The Lord knew what he was sending his disciples into, and he went to pray for them that their faith would not be destroyed by this test. He went to pray in a mountain, the Scripture says. And the Scripture also says that He saw them as they were toiling at, at rowing. I would take this to mean that, that by, his, by His omnipresence, His divine omnipresence, that He saw them while He was in the mountain and they were on the sea, He saw them. This would again infer that his very purpose in going to the mountain, at least one of the purposes, was to intercede for them, to pray for them during this extreme test through which they were to pass. Can you imagine the disciples' sentiments as they head out to cross the sea and everything's fine? But again, as they get into the sea, the wind begins to churn, the waves begin to come, and you can just be, almost hear them say, oh no, not this all over again. The Lord's not with us this time. But though He was not physically with them, they were not out of His sight, nor out of His care. According to Mark 6.48, he saw them. Here is the loving intercession of Christ, our priest. Yes, he does send you, dear ones, into severe trials and temptations of faith. But he never sends you forth without his effectual prayer that your faith not fail. When Peter... In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, was warned by the Lord that he would be sifted by the enemy as wheat. The Lord said, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. That is, when, Peter, you have returned, you will fall away Satan will sift you. He will, he will temporarily overcome you in this trial. But you will not be completely overcome. Your faith will not be destroyed. It will not be fully eclipsed. For I have prayed for you. And this will, in fact, turn out to be, as it were, a turning point in your life, Peter, because you will use this to go forth and to strengthen your brethren through what you yourself have passed through. Dear ones, the Lord Jesus knows better than you know yourself the peculiar weaknesses of your flesh. And He prays that by faith in Him, even those trials that tend to expose your weaknesses will be used to glorify Him and ultimately to profit you, to encourage you. 
Paul could even look back at the period of his life when he was persecuting the church and he could say, in spite of these grievous sins that I committed against the Lord, now I can see where Christ has brought me and I, I am what I am by the grace of God. God's grace was so manifested in Paul's life that he could even rejoice that God had brought him through all of that to where he is, to where he was at that point. You may not be able to rejoice, jump up and down for joy at the trials and the temptations that you are presently passing through. But dear ones, I want you to know a couple things. The Lord is praying for you. And His prayers are not ineffectual. Because what you're going through now will prove to be to your benefit. You can count on it. It is absolutely certain that it will be the case. It will prove to your benefit. Because His prayers are always answered. You see, this was a most important lesson for his disciples to learn while they are there upon the sea without Christ in the boat, as it were physically, Christ not in the boat, because there would come a time when Christ would no longer physically be in their boat as they went out to minister to the world. But he would be as much with them. His presence would be with them as strongly, in fact, Jesus says, because I ascend into heaven, I will send the Holy Spirit. And greater works than these will you do because I go to my Father who is in heaven. The Holy Spirit would become to us a comforter like to the Lord Jesus Christ to be with us. Jesus is no less with us now than he was with the disciples, even though his bodily presence is now in heaven. So as you face physical afflictions, as you face spiritual attacks from the enemy, or financial upheaval in your life, the loss of loved ones, or even contemplating your own death, do you truly know that Christ is in the mountain? Do you truly understand that? Because if you understand that, it will make a difference in your life. If you don't understand it, you will continue to be like the disciples, rowing and rowing and rowing against the wind. Seemingly going nowhere. But if you understand these things, you can enjoy the benefit of that by way of peace and rest and security and trust in the Lord while you yet live here upon the earth. This is one reason why we can be assured that we who have embraced the Lord by faith alone, will never be cast out. Christ's prayers are always answered by the Father. He ever lives, the Scripture says, to make intercession for us. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost.
those who come to him through Christ. Never give up, dear ones. Christ is praying for you. Never throw in the towel. Christ is praying for you. You can't lose when Christ is praying for you. The second main point, the power of Christ, our King. In Mark chapter 6, verse 48 through 51, and then 53 through 56. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. And when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Then verse 53. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the boat, straightway they knew him and ran through that whole region around about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch if it were but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. Having seen the ministry of Christ our priest, let us now witness the ministry of Christ our King. I remind you that most of these disciples... (coughs) were experienced fishermen and knew how to handle the sea. But again, the Lord thrust them into a situation wherein all confidence in their own abilities, in their own gifts, were dashed against the rocks. So only confidence in Christ might be shown to be truly secure. The Lord not only prayed for them as their priests, but now He comes to them as their King to deliver them in order to subdue the fury of that which threatened to destroy them. By the time the Lord had sent the disciples and the multitudes away, as we noted, it was dark. Probably somewhere between 6 o'clock, 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., in fact, John 6.17 says it was dark. Then about the fourth watch of the night, the Lord appeared to the disciples walking on the water. The first watch was from 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch was from 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch from midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. This was during that period, around 3 to 6. The disciples had likely been rowing for some time, for hours, against this fierce storm when the Lord finally appeared. Now, why did the Lord wait so long? 
Why did he tarry? Well, in order that he might be glorified. Why did he tarry when he heard that Lazarus was sick and near unto death? Why did he remain an extra two or three days in the location where he was when he heard this message that the one that he loved, Lazarus, was nigh unto death? In order that he might be glorified. In order that he might show forth his power, his mercy, his faithfulness to those who did not deserve even the least blessing. The same reason is here. The Lord delayed in order to obtain a desperate faith from the disciples, not a mere convenient faith. And it was in the last watch in which their deliverance was realized as it were, one minute before midnight, when the deliverance finally came. It reminds me in Acts chapter 12, verse 7, that Peter had been cast into prison in order to be executed like James by Herod. And the church was praying for Peter while in prison. Now Peter has learned, he knows that as far unless God intervenes, he knows that tomorrow he's about to die. He's about to be slain. But this angel appears to Peter in, in prison, and Peter's not biting his fingernails. Peter's fast asleep. Peter is resting. Peter has learned the lesson which the Lord sought to teach him, how he can't trust in his own resources, in his own strength, in his own might, in his own gifts or graces. He must completely reach out and take hold of Christ. He must throw everything else out of his hand so that he can embrace Christ with both hands. He's learned the lesson. And deliverance comes, as it were, again, a minute before midnight, in Peter's case, there in the prison. And this happens so often in our own lives. That we toil, we toil, we fight, we fight, we struggle, we struggle, and then the Lord brings deliverance. The Lord is seeking to, to have us cast behind us all that which we trust in except Himself, relying upon Him, looking to Him. That doesn't mean we ought not to use the means that God gives to us. God gives us many means to, to fulfill the duties that God has given to us. We should use those means. But we're not trusting in those means. We're trusting in the Lord to accomplish through those means His will in our lives. There's a phrase at the end of Mark 6.48 that is quite interesting in this regard. It says, speaking of Christ, and would have passed by them. Here's the Lord walking on the water, as it were, and He made it appear as if He was just going to walk right by them. As if He would pass by them. He made it appear as if He wasn't walking to them, but walking by them. 
Why? Well, I would again submit to you that this was a way of evincing, calling forth faith from the disciples, helping them to see how much they need Him. It's much like in the case of the Syrophoenician woman who had a daughter who was possessed by a devil, a demon. And she came to the Lord and pled with the Lord to have mercy upon her. And the Lord didn't hear her. I mean, didn't answer her. He heard her, but He wouldn't respond to her. And she kept pleading. And finally, the Lord said uh, that He was sent only to, to the Jew, to Israel. And the, the disciples even sought to dissuade her, to push her away, to discourage her from crying out to the Lord. The Lord, this woman then said, but Lord, uh, the Lord responded previously, He said, I've not been given to, to give the food to dogs. I can't give that which is spiritual, that which is intended for the children. I can't give it to dogs. This was quite a statement to this woman who was so desirous and so sincere. But each step along the way, the Lord is, is putting an obstacle, as it were, before her so as to bring her along one step of faith at a time to, to draw forth from her an even greater degree of faith. And she says, Lord, even the crumbs that are on the table that the children eat fall to the ground and the dogs eat them. I confess I'm a dog. Lord, just give me a crumb. A crumb of encouragement. A morsel. Hear me. And the Lord said, what amazing faith this woman has. So be it according to your faith. You see, the Lord would walk by them rather than to them again so as to draw forth from them a response of, of faith. The disciples, upon seeing Christ walking in the water, however, initially are very, very terrified at what they see. They suppose it to be some spirit. Here they are in the midst of this storm. The waves crushing, crashing against them. The, the wind blowing very severely. Them rowing and becoming extremely tired perhaps near exhaustion. And they see this, what looks like a phantom, a spirit walking out on the water. And so perhaps what they thought in their minds was, great, now there's a spirit, an evil spirit coming. It's not as though we had enough trouble as it were. Now an evil spirit is coming. The word troubled that is used in our English uh, translation is rather insipid here, very weak. The, the actual word is, uh, means they were shaken to the very core with confusion at seeing this spirit. Needless to say, at this point, their fears have overwhelmed them. 
But then from out of the storm come the words of Christ our prophet. Christ our priest, Christ our king, Christ our prophet. The words of Christ our prophet. Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. Be of good cheer, or another way that that is translated is be courageous. Be of good confidence. Good courage. Why? Why should they be of good cheer? Why should they be courageous? It is I. Literally translated that phrase, it is I, is the Greek phrase that is used when Jesus says in John chapter 18, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers come to take him. They said, he says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. That particular Greek phrase, ego, I, me, Jesus uses in other times in his ministry. And it simply is, I am. Be of good cheer, I am. That is, I am is here. Jehovah is here. The great I am that is revealed in Exodus 3.14 is here. The one who delivered Israel out of Egypt is here. The one who created the ends of the earth, the one who created the wind and the sea, is here. Be of good cheer. Therefore, be not afraid. You can't fear, dear ones, if you understand, and again, I keep going back to that concept, if you truly understand. You cannot be overwhelmed with fear if you understand I am is here. Any more than darkness can remain when you turn on the light. Fear cannot reside when we know that Christ is with us. How did these faithful witnesses go to death with such confidence? How did they face the persecution that they did? Because they knew, I am Jehovah the Lord Jesus Christ was with them. They were absolutely assured. They didn't have a mere intellectual knowledge. They truly understood the truth and was applied to their lives. At this point, Matthew's Gospel introduces the account of Peter walking on the water in Mark 14. I'm sorry, Matthew 14, verses 28 through 31. Let me just very briefly read that to you so that you get a fuller picture of what's going on here. Matthew 14, verse 28. After Jesus says, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Verse 28 says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee 
on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Upon hearing that it was Christ, Peter seeks permission from Christ to come to him. When he says, If it be thou, Lord, bid me come to thee, he's not, saying, he's not expressing a doubt. That particular condition is not a condition of, of doubt. It, it would be uh, equally well translated, Since it is thee, or since it is thou, Lord, bid me to come. This would appear, as I said, to be, therefore, a sincere act of faith and love on Peter's part to come to meet the Lord. He isn't criticized or condemned for seeking to join the Lord out on the water. There is no, uh, there is no charge leveled against Peter. What are you asking such a request for? That doesn't seem to be the problem here at all. This was a, I would take this to be an act of, of a sincere act of faith and love on Peter's part. Peter was, after all, a very forthright person in demonstrating his love for the Lord. And even in Mark chapter 14, verse 29, we find that, that Peter, when... He knew that the Lord was about to be crucified and the Lord said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter says, Lord, if everybody else would leave you and abandon you, I will never leave you. You see, Peter was sincere in his faith. The problem was he was immature in his faith. It wasn't that he didn't have faith. It wasn't that this wasn't genuine. It was just that he had the faith to take that particular step. But when the trial came, he didn't have the faith, the sufficient faith, to withstand the trial that came his way once he was out on the water. His faith and love were genuine, but yet inexperienced and immature. Like a child, I would compare it, like a child that is on the other side of a road, there's a busy highway, and he happens to see his daddy on this side. And because he wants to be with his daddy, he takes off across the highway in sincere love for his father, but does not take into account the trial, does not have the experience, does not have the maturity to reckon that, you know, if you're going to take that step onto the highway, you better be prepared for the risks that are involved. Well, Peter had taken the step, but he was not prepared for the risks that came his way. A sign of immaturity. It's true of all of us. We have seen immaturity in all of us, in all of our faith. Peter actually joins the Lord on the water and begins to walk with him on the water. All is going great as long as I is fixed upon the Lord in faith. And when his eyes are taken off of the Lord, 
through his fear of the waves as he begins to contemplate the circumstances all about him. And he has not kept the Lord preeminently in his sight. He sinks. Again, a classic illustration how apart from Jesus Christ we can do nothing. We will certainly perish. We will certainly fail without Jesus Christ. We cannot accomplish reformation even if we say that we're doing so for Christ. We cannot bring reformation in our family without Christ. We can't bring it in this church or in any other church or in the nations without Jesus Christ. All of our techniques and all of our strategy, no matter how brilliant, no matter how much money we might have, will accomplish nothing without Jesus Christ. It's vain. It's futile. But not having the techniques, not having the strategy, not having the money, if we have Jesus Christ, reformation is sure to come. Now, there's nothing wrong with having both either. God supplies money by way to to carry out. But our confidence is not in those means. It is in Jesus Christ. In desperation, Peter cries out, Lord, have mercy upon me. Save me as he's sinking. The Lord does not leave his children to perish in their sins. Even though they started off well, and though they may begin to sink, the Lord does not leave them to perish in their sins. He rescues them. He has saved them. He teaches them through those various circumstances that they can only walk on the water, as it were. That is, they can only tread upon all the adversities of life. They can only trample upon those that would oppose the gospel of Christ. They can only walk over the false teachers and the false religions, the heathen kings, those who oppose his reformation, his cause, by keeping their eyes upon Christ. They can't walk over and tread over those restless waves without keeping their faith in Christ steadfast. Well, Christ not only wondrously demonstrates his kingship over creation by walking on the water himself, but also by silencing that that fierce storm. Immediately as he steps into the boat, a calm proceeds over all of the sea. Can you imagine? Total chaos, one second. Christ steps in the boat, total peace. I mean, what a contrast to be at one point fighting for your life and just like that to have perfect calm and peace. Well, this is a picture of what happens in a person's soul. They go from warring against Christ when they become regenerate. When a person is truly saved, when he comes to know Jesus Christ by faith, he ceases to be an enemy. He ceases to be in rebellion against Christ. He ceases to hate the things of God. 
And though he struggles, and though he still has those corruptions within his soul, he begins to experience the Romans 7 situation where what he wants to do, he doesn't do. But that which he doesn't want to do, he does do. But total peace, because the Lord is the Prince of Peace. And the same power of Christ, and I won't have time to go into this, but the same power of Christ as King is manifested as he goes through the cities in, in Mark 6, verses 53 through 56, healing those who were sick and ill. He is the King. He has the power over illness and sickness, over every infirmity. He goes forth conquering all of his enemies as demonstrated by this power. The last main point is this, the forgetfulness of the disciples. In Mark 6.52, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Herein is expressed, I would submit to you, the root problem which the Lord sought to expose in the faith of the disciples, they had a forgetful faith. They did not understand the miracle just performed in their presence wherein Christ multiplied the fish and the bread to feed thousands of people. They no doubt thought this is a great thing to witness and to see. But it quickly faded from their memory showing that they truly did not understand the significance of that miracle, of that truth. Rather than remembering Christ's miracle, rather than meditating upon Christ's undeserved mercy to the multitudes, rather than applying Christ's amazing power and faithfulness to their own present situation in which they found themselves, They forgot, for they had not laid it up in their hearts and practiced it in their lives. The truths were witnessed. They were enjoyed for the time being, but they were forgotten. They didn't remember them. Dear ones, I would challenge you today to think upon this truth that forgetfulness in these matters is not an indifferent thing with God. Forgetfulness of God, of Christ, of His mercies, of His truth, of His faithfulness is sin. To not remember in this case is sin, for it means that we have not applied the truths to our own lives. We have taken it in intellectually, but we have not applied it because application would would infer that we also remember it, that we not forget it. There are many passages, and I, again, will not take the time to go through the passages in the Old Testament, which call us continually to forget not. Forget not the many benefits. 
which the Lord has worked for you. Forget not his faithfulness. Forget not his covenant. Forget not his precepts, his word. The nations that forget the Lord in Psalm 9.17 will be destroyed. Who forget the Lord? doesn't mean they didn't have any knowledge of the Lord. It implies they did, but they forget the Lord. They'll be destroyed. One of the duties we as parents owe to God and to our children in Psalm 78.7 is not to allow them to forget God's mighty acts and deeds in history. To continue to bring before them what God has accomplished in history. How people like you and me have stood faithfully for Christ, courageously for Christ, willing to lay down their lives for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to suffer the loss of family and possessions for the sake of Christ. Dear ones, if we forget our past, if we forget our spiritual heritage, we don't know who we are. We have no identity as to who we are. We must not forget who are our spiritual ancestors. Yes, all of those who walk faithfully in the Scripture, but also those who have walked faithfully subsequent to the completion of the Scripture. I would submit it is this forgetfulness that leads us away from God and into the very sins that so heavily weigh us down when we forget the Lord. As parents, we may certainly make allowances for our children's forgetfulness when they're very young. But there comes a time when our child's forgetfulness is no longer a viable excuse for not picking up his toys. And if you uh, accept that as a legitimate excuse, Dad, I forgot. Mom, I forgot. If that continues to be tolerated and allowed, pretty soon it will be used for not taking out the trash as well. And you can go on and on and on. I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. There comes a point when forgetfulness is culpable. We cannot simply forget what the Lord has taught us. And we can't be harder on our children, dear parents, than we should be upon ourselves. Because if we are using a similar excuse with God, God have mercy upon us. I forgot. Dear ones, we naturally seek to justify our sins. But forgetfulness in the Christian life is so often just another word for neglect. What we should simply be saying is, I neglected to do that. Or I didn't want to do that. That's the honest response. Not, I forgot. I didn't want to. I neglected my duty. We are forgetful, dear ones, because we are neglectful and have not put Christ in the preeminent place that He so highly deserves in our lives. We forget because he's way back here in the dark 
deep recesses of our mind instead of upon our foreheads, upon our tongues, and upon our wrists. That's why we forget. Are you a forgetful hearer? Or are you an effectual doer of God's Word? Dear ones, we will never know the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives if we do not remember if we don't stop forgetting, if we do not meditate upon His works, if we do not think upon His mighty deeds, if we do not give Him praise and thanksgiving throughout the day, and if we don't show others that we are thankful as well, because when we're thankful to God, we're going to be expressing that same thankfulness to others and encouraging them. Without a remembering heart, fear and doubt and unbelief and the sin of every kind will reign in our lives. The disciples fell because they did not remember Christ in all of His glory. And you and I will surely do the same if we forget Him. But there's one thing I want to have you remember and leave with you as we close. Though we may forget Him, he never forgets us. And this ought to bring even the greater shame to bear upon our hearts. He who does not ever forget us is the very one that we are so easily apt to forget. In Isaiah 49, I close with this passage. Isaiah chapter 49, hear the words of the Lord to Israel, his people, whether his Israel of the Old Testament or his, his covenant people in the New Testament. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. It says, But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. What an incentive this is, dear ones, to not forget the Lord, because He never forgets us. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, forgive us for our forgetfulness. For Lord, the, the sin really in our forgetting is because we don't want to. We m must be honest with Thee. We have neglected Thee. Lord, give to us the grace to confess our sin unto Thee. Give to us, O Lord, the grace to persevere in overcoming our forgetfulness by remembering Thee throughout the day, by calling ourselves to, to attention, to hear the word of the Lord as it, as it echoes within our, our hearts and our, our minds, as we dwell upon that which we have read in secret worship or family worship or heard in the sermon from the past Lord's Day, 
Well, Lord, we pray that we would, would remember these things, that we would also reflect back upon how Thou hast so faithfully provided for us in the past and how, O oh Lord, Thou will not forget us in the future. That, Father, we pray that we would not be like the disciples who continue to struggle and to struggle because they forgot the Lord. Help us to remember that Jesus comes to us. The great I Am comes to us. And there can be no fear when we understand He is with us. And that He is our priest who prays for us and intercedes for us. Let all of these truths, Father, bear fruit in our lives. Today, tomorrow, for weeks, months, and years to come until we meet Thee, O Lord, on that final day. O Lord our God, we do pray that Thou would, would encourage us by Thy word this day and by Thy truth and give us, to us the grace to apply Thy truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.